Hello, and welcome to another episode of Intelligence for Your Life, the podcast. I'm Gib Gerard. Our guest this week is Eric Barker. He is author of the new book, Plays Well with Others. You know him from Barking Up the Wrong Tree. We've had him on the show before, so we, uh, we're going to have him on again. Uh, he's uh, Barking Up the Wrong Tree, huge international bestseller. Uh, you know, one of the biggest books of all time. This is his follow-up, Plays Well with Others. Uh, we're going to talk all about the importance of healthy relationships on every aspect of your life. Those kinds of real, intimate relationships where this person knows you really well. So um, why that's important, what his research has led him to. Uh, so stay tuned for that, folks. I say stay tuned, but here we go. Here is my interview with Eric Barker. Eric Barker, uh, author, friend of the show. It's your second time on. Appreciate you being with us today. It's great to be here, man. Your new book, uh, the book we had for you last time, what was, the, what was your book that we had last barking time? Up, barking Up the Wrong Tree. Barking Up the Wrong Tree. Huge bestseller, by the way. And you can go back and listen to that interview with Eric Barker that we did before for Barking Up the Wrong Tree. Uh, your new book plays well with others. The surprising science behind why everything you know about relationships is mostly wrong. Uh, so first and foremost, before we get into what's wrong about how we, uh, about how we view our relationships, what led you to down this path and like, why, why did you decide to, to, to play this angle? Uh, frankly, I wasn't very good at relationships. I, I never have been. And, you know, my, my response on my blog and in my prior book has always been to look at the, look at the research, look at the science, try and get the honest answers. And, you know, what I found was that I found a lot of things, but what I found was that, you know, I wasn't the only one who had some misconceptions and was doing things wrong. So mm -hmm. I think we can, we can all learn, especially uh, coming out of the pandemic. So in your, so I think in the pandemic, what we learned was that certain parts of our relationships, like I think that, you know, some marriages ended, some marriages got stronger, some people, uh, found that like, it, it, first of all, it's fantastic that we were able to do the pandemic, a, a modern pandemic in the era of zoom. So at least we had that, you know, we were able to, to stay in meetings. We were able to continue to connect with friends. I mean, I, I, I never need to do another zoom happy hour for as long as I live, but it was <laughs> nice that we were able to do them for a little while, right? Like it was, it was better than nothing. Um, yeah. but I think we learned a lot like about what is it better than nothing? Like, is this actually something that is worth our time and uh, or do or in our in-person interactions so much more important? You know, I mean, it you know, it definitely does matter. Face to face to face makes a difference. Right. But, you know, one of the things I, I learned in the book, I mean, was I was shocked to find was that uh, John Cacioppo was the leading researcher on loneliness. Mm -hmm. And, you know, what he found is that lonely people don't spend any less time with others than non-lonely people. Do, Interesting. Which was shocking to me, but it actually makes sense when you think about it, because we've all felt lonely in a crowd. And yeah. if, if, you know, if, if being proximate, being nearby people was enough to cure loneliness, then we wouldn't feel lonely in a crowd. But right. loneliness is a subjective experience. You know, loneliness isn't merely being distant, physically distant from people. Loneliness is how you feel about your relationships. And when we don't feel like they're deep or meaningful, then we can be physically close to someone and still feel like we're not understood and we're not cared about. Mm -hmm. So it's not merely the issue of being physically close. It's the issue of that feeling of connection that right. sometimes we, we lack pandemic or no pandemic. Um, okay. So, so I mean, so I agree with you. So thinking, walking through New York city by myself where yeah. I am constantly around people, right. Yeah. Uh, is in my mind a way lonelier experience than hiking in the wilderness where you rarely run into people but when you run into the people you talk to them because there are so few people right so like that sort of is the 
anecdotal version of what you're implying there, right? Absolutely. And that's, and that's also the difference between loneliness and solitude. You know, right. loneliness is, you know, almost has been shown in studies by Julia Holt-Lundstad to say that like it's the equivalent of smoking. Loneliness is, is so bad for you. But yet Vivek Murthy, who's the Surgeon General of the United States, shows that solitude is actually beneficial. But right. again, it's, you know, not necessarily like you were saying, it's not necessarily about having people nearby. It's about how connected do you feel to them? Right. And, you know, if, if you feel like, Hey, I have meaningful relationships, I'm close to people, they understand me, then you can go hiking and you can know there's people out there who still care about me right. versus being surrounded by people in Manhattan and not knowing any of them and don't feeling like they care about you or not. So what is the key? I mean, in your research, what is that? What is that little what is the fulcrum on which this hinges? Like, how do you if, if we're all spending the same amount of time with people, why do we some people feel lonely and other people don't other people it's, don't? It really comes down to an issue of depth, you know, where all the what was fascinating, you know, as well, looking at the research was that uh, Faye Alberti is a historian at the University of York, and she looked back at all these texts going back literally like 2000 years. And she found that before the 19th century, you know, the word lonely, first of all, wasn't used very often. And when it was used, it didn't have that negative spin on it. It merely meant isolated. It didn't mean the the negative implications. And that because that's because we were all tied together by you right. know, religion, by nation. You felt like you were a part of a group, a tribe, a community. And we, we lack that. We don't have that same level of community that lets us know, even if people aren't nearby, you know, so there's that issue of community. The other aspect is the issue of the depth of those relationships. You can have, you know, acquaintances and contacts, but, you know, how well do your friends know and understand you? How comfortable do you feel opening up to them, being vulnerable to them? And if we don't take the time to really open up, be vulnerable deep, and this is a lot of what I found in the friendship section of the book, you know, is that is that we're going to have these shallow relationships, right. and that is going to make us question whether whether we really are connected to anyone. So that may, so the the real difference between loneliness and connection is is connection, right? That feeling <laughs> that, that feeling of like of 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 being vulnerable, but of of fully being seen by somebody else, and that the impact that that has on your psyche and in your in your feelings of self worth, like how 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 much that how much we as as individuals need that and how little we actually get of that is, is that kind of the 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 takeaway absolutely i looked at because when i was writing about friendship you know first thing i did was look at dale carnegie and you know how to win turns, friends and influence people ex exactly uh you know which is you know books almost uh, almost 100 years old and right. you know is still selling millions of copies uh, and Dale Carnegie's book has largely been validated by the research, not completely, but most of what he says is true. The only issue with Carnegie really is that it's for the beginning of relationships, right. it's for when you first meet someone. And it's not going to lead to those, the kind of like brother from another mother, sort of blood brother, you mm -hmm. know, sister from another mister type relationships. We need to go beyond Carnegie and we need right. to send costly, what are called costly signals, basically the two being time and vulnerability. You know, time is a powerful signal because I only time is scarce. And if I right. spend it with you, I'm not spending it with someone else. Right. Right. And then vulnerability, if I share things with you that could be used against me that might make me look bad, sure. that tells you, hey, I trust you. 
And the best way to create trust in other people is to demonstrate trust. And this is really powerful. You know, University of Pennsylvania research showed that not opening up in your relationships leads to prolongs minor illnesses, wow. increases the chance of a first heart attack, and also makes it more likely that that first heart attack will be lethal. That's and that and that, I'm I'm sure that is the same as the vulnerability statistics, right? I'm sorry, the loneliness statistics, right? That this idea of having uh, worse life expectancy, worse life outcomes when you are when you feel that loneliness right it's the same it's the two sides of the same coin yeah when they put people in an mri and do a brain scan mm -hmm. what they find is that people who report feeling lonely their brain literally scans for threats uh, twice as fast mm. so like literally because you're 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 alone you're the lone wolf you exactly. don't have the pack to to look to look in the other areas for the threats you have to look twice as much that makes sense Exactly. That's that's the thing is that even if, you know, when you're hungry, you know you're hungry. When you're sleepy, you know you're sleepy. But when we don't feel connected, that can just present, you know, it, it's not as clear always. Sometimes it just feels like sadness or anxiety. Right. And, right. and yeah, if you don't, if you feel like I'm not supported, you know, your, your, your old lizard brain, you know, for millions of years is saying, if problems happen, help isn't coming. Right. You better be ready. And that just leads to these anxious, you know, stressful feelings. And so, yeah, it's like without that connection where we feel like somebody's looking out for us, our brain is always on high alert and that doesn't lead to good things. Sure. And that, that's, that's stress. So when you feel, when you feel like you have that person, that person that sees you or, or, or even a small group of people that see you, that community, um, that like truly knows you, that you've been vulnerable with, that is, uh, that it, I mean, obviously that's a cure for loneliness, but it's also, it seems like it's a cure for actual physical ailments as well. I mean, absolutely. It makes, it makes such a difference to, to feel that what's, what's really interesting is that, you know, it's great in terms of a friendship or a marriage to have that connection, mm -hmm. but we, we also need that feeling of community. Uh, sure. a, a 2020 study showed that if you have five close friends, Hey, that'll make you happier. It makes you feel more supported. But if those five friends know each other, you're going to feel even more supported wow. because now you have exactly now you have a community because now instead of you just having five one-off relationships those people can say hey you know he's feeling down like we should do something for him right. they can coordinate that's something that doesn't happen when your friends don't know each other you 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 get this kind of synergy when friends know each other that forms a, a little tribe of sorts mm. Hmm. I mean, I think, wow, I mean, the, the power of that, we kind of know it, right? But, but I think we, we, we ignore it, right? We, we think of ourselves, we, we have this idea of the lone wolf. We have, we've sort of romanticized the idea of being, it's, like, it's what the Count of Monte Cristo does. In yeah. the Count of Monte Cristo, he disappears and then he comes back and, and, and reclaims what was taken from him or tries to reclaim what was taken from him. Obviously, the the original book, as opposed to some of the movie remakes, <laughs> the takeaway is that you can never reclaim what was taken from you. You can only move forward. Um, but in the in the movie version, you know he does reclaim what was taken from him. It's it's an irritating it's an irritating change. But that's but that we have this idea, this romanticized idea of us going off on our own and and then coming back into the world as a stronger person. But you're saying that's not the case. Well, I mean, what we've seen across the board is that you know the past two hundred years has been this tremendous rise of individualism, right. which which in right. many ways 
you know, has been a, a positive. I mean, it's unlocked like tremendous energy into the world and it's become very dynamic, but we're, we're missing something. We, we kind of lost something in the trade. Not that we should go back, but, you know, we, we see that Robert Putnam at Harvard did research looking through the 20th century. And we have basically, because we think about the 1950s and we, we think about like bowling leagues and the Elk Lodge mm-hmm. and, you know, people had these groups and those just don't seem to exist no. anymore. no. No, and what he found was it was really television is that marked the shift because people wow. shifted to parasocial relationships. People Interesting. felt like basically TV characters almost became substitutes for friends. And this was this is really this is really difficult. Actually, there was in 2008 there was a writer's strike in Hollywood, yep. and some some TV shows stopped you know broadcasting. I remember they, exactly and. Uh, they did research on this, and what they found was that the experience for many viewers was basically like a breakup. Yeah. Yeah, there were some shows that ended, and one of my favorite shows ended because <laughs> of the writer's strike, and I, it was awful. It was Pushing Daisies. I loved that show, <laughs> and it went away because the writer's strike, and I was so sad. Um, so yeah, no, I, I, I've definitely experienced that. So, so this is the idea, you know, you, you take one of the things you do in the book is you take adages, uh, adages about relationship, and you, and you actually, okay, are these supported by, by real life? Um, and this is kind of the idea, no man is an island. And that, uh, I'm, I'm guessing, based on the conversation <laughs> we've had so far, that no man is an island. Like, that is accurate. That that is an accurate adage and that we really need to lean into that and understand that a little bit better. Yeah, we, we, we really do need some feeling of community. Like, like I said, when your brain's scanning for threats twice as fast, you know, it's at a very fundamental level, you know, because we, we kind of feel like, oh, our needs are met, you know, Mm -hmm. in terms of food and electricity and, you know, it's shelter. Yeah. But we still need to, you know, care for others and have others care for us. I think the best example is probably from parenting because, you know, your, your, your kids have plenty of food, but, but you still want to provide for them. You still have this need, this urge. And, in a lot of ways in the modern world, that's going unfulfilled because we we don't have the ties we used to have because they're in prior they were forced upon us. You would you would die without the group, mm-hmm. and now we can live our, on our own. And so we we kind of have gotten a little bit lazy because right. we weren't forced to by survival. Right. So that immediate need, that urgency, is not felt as much. Do you feel do you feel like social media is this on steroids? Like, uh, absolutely, because I feel like it gives us. It gives us those fake interactions, and it, I always, I, I've noticed, or I've said, um, especially during the pandemic and the quarantine times, like it scratched an itch enough that it made us feel like, okay, we're all right. But really, we're starting to see how not all right we were by having only these interactions. You're 100 percent right. Like Putnam found, it was TV in the 20th century, and in the 21st century, it's it's social media where. You know, instead of getting a sumptuous meal, we're we're getting we're getting this junk food kind right, of right, right, exactly. It's high calorie, low nutritional value. <laughs> like a lot of contact, a lot of points of contact, a lot of putting yourself out there, but no no real nutri- no vitamin A. And that's that's the thing. You're you're really not going to open up about your problems and talk about your concerns and stuff on you know via direct message on Instagram. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so we we get the feeling of contact right. without the real depth of contact. Sure. And that's what we're missing. Yeah. You know, it's it, you, you hit on something earlier where you talk about uh, Carnegie and and um, and how it's great for building those initial superficial relationships. And I it, it reminded me of of 
of something I've noticed in how we organize our, our radio show and our podcast and, and all the stuff that we do, the idea of intelligence for life. We do a lot of research and do a lot of stories about how to get that first date or how to turn that first date into a second date. And a lot of stuff about long-term relationships and how to maintain long-term coupling or through the ups and downs of, of life. But very little, very little energy, time, research is spent on how to go from that like second or third date into a relationship. And I think we kind of operate under the assumption because historically it's been the case. It's like at a certain point, your autonomic system will evaluate the person enough to decide, is this something you want to continue with or not? If you can just get over some of those initial butterflies, like we just kind of trust that the system will work itself out. But I feel like society has reorganized itself in such a way that we kind of need help in that area now. Oh, absolutely. Because the, you know, the research shows that, you know, basically there's entropy, you know, is that the initial love, love, you know, love just kind of hits you, just kind of happens to you. It's, it's, it's passive and, mm -hmm. you know, that's great, but it can be a little tricky because those feelings often die down. And if we're not proactive about trying to keep that connection, keep those feelings, uh, you know, it can, it can sort of die down. So one of the things I talk about in the book is that we we basically doing exciting stuff. They did a study comparing uh, couples who went on pleasant dates and couples who went on exciting dates. And couples who went on exciting dates were much happier because of the psychological principle of emotional contagion. Mm. Basically, whenever whenever we're in an environment, you know, the, the the feelings we have in that environment, we associate them with who's with us. So if we do yeah, if we do exciting things together, we can associate those with our partner and that can help sustain a relationship over the long haul. Interesting. So, <laughs> so when you get to dates three and four, start, you know, start planning the, the big, exciting moves, right? Start I mean, getting into that space. Well, I mean, that this is the thing is that is that like very early on, people tend do tend to do fun, exciting stuff. They do right. tend to like go out and everything. The issue is, you know, we need to sustain that for years and decades. We, mm -hmm. we, we need to, you know, it's like another night of Netflix and pizza. You know, I mean, that's that's over time. That's that's going to wind down versus, you know, getting out there. It's like, you know, go, going to concerts, going horseback riding, getting on roller coasters. You know, it's like if you keep acting like you did, because mm -hmm. people think that, hey, we did fun, exciting stuff because we were in love. And it's like, that's true. But the reverse is also true. You yeah. fell in love because you yeah. did fun, exciting things together. That's interesting. That's interesting. I, I, I like I like the uh, symmetry of what you're saying. Hey, we're going to take a quick break. Uh, when we come back, we are going to talk a little bit more about the different adages about relationships, both romantic and platonic, and how, uh, how, we, how they may be right or wrong. So stay with us. We're talking with Eric Barker, author of the new book, Plays Well with Others, The Surprising Science Behind Why Everything You Know About Relationships is Mostly wrong. Uh, I do the pause mostly because in your subtitle, you put it in parentheses. That's why I'm, <laughs> I'm not like working on my William Shatner impersonation. Sorry, <laughs> um, before we were talking about a little bit about um, how you need to keep the excitement up in romantic relationships. Uh, why do you think we, we allow that to happen so much? And, and, and why do you think we let our, ourselves, our, let ourselves go? I mean, we're busy. We're tired. You know, it's like with, with, you know, with, with marriage, this can definitely happen over the long term, but probably where it suffers the most, frankly, is friendship, you interesting. know, fr friend, friendship. What's really interesting is Daniel Kahneman, who won the Nobel prize, you know, he had did research showing that friendships make us happier than any other relationship. Mm -hmm. And this was surprising to me, you know, sorry spouses, but you know, friendships make us happier, but 
it's because friendship gets so little support. Friendship doesn't have an institution right. you know, behind it. Friend, right. Friendship doesn't have a lobbying group pushing for its interests. And that means friendship often gets the short end of the stick. However, it also means that friendship is always voluntary. It's never an obligation. You know, and so if you're with your friends, it's because you like them. You know, there's there's sure. no spousal contract. There's no, you know, it's not your kids where you, you you can go to jail if you don't take care of them. Yeah. You know, it's like friends, it's always a choice. And so because of that, you know, it it makes such a difference because if, if these people didn't make us happy, we wouldn't spend time with them. I want, I want, I want to kind of ask two things. One is as you get into adulthood, it becomes harder and harder to make friends. I mean, in, in. Yeah, my best friends growing up were guys I went to school with yeah. or played sports with, right? Um, or had had shared interests with that were around like the myriad of activities I did. And as you get into adulthood, you know, work friends, you kind of want to keep at arm's length, right? Because that's yeah. a professional setting, and you don't want to you don't want to complicate that. And we, uh, but how, how do you make friends into adulthood? I mean, you know, first and foremost is you know making the time. First and foremost is you know getting out there in terms of the things you do. Mm-hmm. You know, most of us really don't make an effort you right know, it's like we 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 don't try explicitly right and you know a, a really good piece of advice that uh you know i found when i was doing my first book barking up their own tree was that usually what we find if you go through the contacts uh on your phone what you'll find is that a disproportionate number of the people you know were introduced to you or you're connected to them by a handful of people these people are like the super connectors sure. in your network they're the sure. hubs of the sure. network so if you're looking to meet more people and you want to get the most bang for your buck reaching out to those people and saying hey you know it's like i'm, I'm looking to meet some new people who should i talk to mm-hmm. you know these are the people who are really at the center of the network who connected you before who probably you have some sort of a connection with that's probably the best place to start the second step i would say is like I said, uh, the the bulk of the research, you know, shows that most of what Dale Carnegie said is right, you know, is like expressing similarity, you know, paying compliments, you know, these kind of small things that Carnegie talked about. And then if you want to deepen the relationship, sure. like I said, time and vulnerability are what are what leads to the the deeper friendships that last. And no shortcuts, it seems like, right? <laughs> That's what I'm hearing. There's no shortcuts. There's no like, hey, you know, you, here's a trick. It's just, you, just time and vulnerability would, you know, yeah, incredible. I remember in the 80s, it was very important to spend quality time. Yeah. It, was a, it was sort of like coming out of the yuppies. People realized they had <laughs> they had these like professional relationships and these superficial personal relationships. And so they invented this idea to make people feel less guilty called quality time. Um, and I, I basically in the ensuing three decades, uh, research after research has has just knocked that off and said, quality time is great, but it is no substitute for quantity time. I mean... You, you need to, you know, make time for people consistently. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, their rec- uh, Notre Dame did a study of 8 million phone calls and found that the relationships that persisted, the people who kept calling each other over the duration of the study, were people who touched base roughly every two weeks. You mm-hmm. know, and it's like what, that consistency is really helps. What, what do you do about the people? I mean, I have friendships like this. People that yeah. I don't talk to for three months, six months. Uh, we go through periods where we talk every day, but we go through these periods too where we, we talk very infrequently. But these are some of my best, closest friends, guys that I've known since I was, you know, in kindergarten, guys I've known since I was in junior high, you know, guys I've known for decades. And we can pick up like that right where we left off. Just it's it's like no time has passed. And 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 I love these these guys with all my heart. How does that 
How does that fit into this idea of, of this consistency? I mean, the, the issue there being those are the ones that survived. You know, so it's it's like, absolutely, there are some people where we, we don't need all the upkeep. Mm-hmm. But, you know, think about how many other people did you go to school with? How yeah. many other people were yeah. you friends with? Yeah. And they're gone. So, you know, probably 90 plus percent of the time, a more passive approach didn't work. These are these are the these are kind of the Navy SEALs who made it through the right, incredible right. difficult training and right. survived over the right. decades. Right. You know, but part of that was due to a strong connection and part of that was due to luck. And you know, it's 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 really hard. So if if there is a relationship where we we want to, because what the research shows in, is it generally in seven years, half of close friends are no longer close friends. Wow. Yeah. That makes sense. I mean, I I can kind of see a bigger turnover every seven years in my friend group um, with a handful of people that have been consistently my friends for for decades, Um, which I I don't know. I don't know how that goes with the research, but that's that's my experience. Absolutely. Uh, Okay, so let's 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 I want to cover a couple other things. Um, And and again, I know your time is valuable. Um, We talked about social media being this sort of scratching a niche earlier, but you do talk about how we can use social media to benefit ourselves. Uh, how we can actually improve our relationships, and I and and uh, I do want to touch on some stuff about why that's not all bad. So how, even though it's this faux connection, even though it's not the kind of intimacy and time that we're talking about, how can social media actually improve our relationships? I mean, first and foremost, you know, if this is somebody who lives hundreds of thousands of miles away, and mm-hmm. you're you're not going to see them that often, sure. you know, that can you know. Hit, hit it with a defibrillator that can that can keep their relationship right, alive right. you know so in terms of that obviously it's like a zoom call phone call or something would would be better but you know that can definitely help when when deeper contact is not really mm-hmm. an option but more importantly social media can be valuable if we take it and we use it to leverage it to meet face to face so if you say hey wow so you know saw that photo, you had your first kid, like, that's fantastic, you know, like, let's meet up. If you leverage social media to get together face to face, then the research shows it is fantastic. The right. other thing we just need to make sure is that the because there's so much research that goes back and forth on social media is awful, social media can be good. Social media. Mm-hmm. The real key thing here is that we we have kind of a buddy budget, we only have so much time, we got to right. sleep, we got to work. Right. And the problem is when social media cannibalizes too much of the time that you would have used for deeper connections like mm-hmm. face-to-face. So as long as you're budgeting it and managing, again, those distant relationships or those difficult, that's great. We just don't want social media to cannibalize face-to-face time and deeper connections. Fair, fair. Okay, you have some great anecdotes in your book, and I would love to talk about them. There's one in particular. Uh, it's on the dust jacket. Uh, expert con man led his way, lied his way into a 20 year professional soccer career, uh, using these like techniques, uh, that we've been talking about. How, how does that, how, how does that work and how does that apply to our assumptions about relationships? No, I, I, you know, the first section of the book, I talk about, you know, can you judge a book by its cover? Like what, the, because on one hand, you know, we don't obviously want to rush to judgment. On the other hand, we, you know, we see Sherlock Holmes just reading people, you know, incredibly. Mm-hmm. And one of the things I talk about is lie detection and, so much of what people have been told about, you know, detecting lies is totally wrong. We we think we should look for anxiety, but that's never been shown to work. Right. What does work is cognitive load. That is basically lies take a lot more mental horsepower than mm-hmm. you think. Mm-hmm. And if we make if we make that amount of thinking harder, if we make them have to think 
more, that can actually produce legitimate tells that help you detect a lie. Um, that okay. So how do we how do we do that? How do we use that to make people detect a lie? How do we so, how do you stress somebody out like that? Uh, basically, the one of the key things you can do is is called using unanticipated questions. So if if you were a bartender and uh, somebody who was under looks underage came into the bar mm-hmm. and you said to them, "How old are you?" Well, the, they're going to say twenty one, right? You know, but what if you said to them, "What year were you born?" You know, now they probably didn't prepare for that question, mm-hmm. and now they're going to have to do math. <laughs> Right. <laughs> so you're going to get this longer pause where I uh, seven. Uh, um, oh, uh, yeah. You know, and that basically when they taught airport screeners to use unanticipated questions in general, airport screeners detect less than 5% of lies they're told. Mm-hmm. When they were told to use unanticipated questions, this shot up to 64%. Interesting. Because all of a sudden you can't prepare for every question that sure. someone would ask you. And so if someone says, oh, oh, yeah, I, I was at the meeting yesterday. Then you can say, "Oh, okay, cool." Was Carol wearing that scarf that she always wears at the meeting? Mm-hmm. Now, this is something that is a minefield for a liar because mm-hmm. you can check that, and they don't know the answer, right? You know, and so th- using unanticipated questions is really powerful because there's no way a liar can prepare for every question you could possibly ask them. Right? Oh, it's interesting, and that probably is where the correlation between stress initially came. Right. Is the uh, it, when you when they have to do the extra work that that reads like anxiety in terms of uh, in terms of the physical signs. Potentially. The only issue with that is we never know if somebody is having a rough day, if somebody's sure. just scared, if somebody's intimidated by mm-hmm. you personally. Right. So you can never be sure of that. But when somebody's brain starts slowing down as they start going, oh, God, was Carol, does she even have a scarf? I don't know. Like, you know, now they realize right. that you're asking for details that can be verified. Uh, that makes sense. All right. As we as we wrap this up. Uh, I want to uh, two two things that I want to cover, and then and then we'll 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 end this. What was the most surprising confirmed uh, confirmed adage, and what was the most surprising disproved adage? I mean the you know the 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 it's funny the no man is an island probably didn't surprise anyone. Right, right. It was interesting to to learn along the way. Um, you know, in terms of maybe the degree you know, of how true it is was uh, was surprising. Like how true, no, how truly, no man is an island. I mean, the degree to which probably the ratio of how important it is and how little attention we give it in terms mm-hmm. of living such individualistic lives. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that was critical. But what was really profound uh, was with the uh, with the love section. You know, in terms of does love conquer all. Um, you know, we all know there's roughly a 40% divorce rate in the United right, States, right. you know, so often, obviously, you know, not, but what's really interesting is that there's, uh, you know, that section, I have a warning, uh, you know, at the beginning of that section, the section of that book, because there's a lot of negative stuff I have to go through to get to the positive. Mm. And, you know, what it turns out is that, you know, 40% divorce rate, but then you have other people who, you know, are living, living together unhappily, right? Lots of negatives there. But what's really interesting is despite all the negatives on average, uh, this is work by Eli Finkel at Northwestern University, the happiest marriages today are the happiest marriages that have ever existed on earth. Interesting. Yes. So the average is pretty lousy and kind of getting worse. But if you do the work, 
Like we have it's we, income inequality uh, on 100%. 100%. <laughs> marital he, happiness. <laughs> you're, you're, no, you're, you, are, you don't know how right you are. He refers to it as the winner take all marriage. Um, basically, that right now we don't have the social pressures, we don't have the rules, we don't have the societal support. And what that means is people who are dependent upon those outside forces, like holding the marriage together, right. they're not going to do well. However, people who treat it like a do-it-yourself project. You have right. more freedom. You have more ability to craft a marriage. So if you do the work, make the decisions, follow up, you are going to have the most fantastic, custom-tailored, perfect marriage that has ever existed. Wow. It's just we need to understand what works and do it. Again, you know, that's just, it's, it, it, what I'm hearing is effort, 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 time, effort, 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 effort time. Right? Like when it comes to relationships, like that's, there's a reality is there's just no shortcut, whether it's platonic friendships, romantic relationships, marriages, there is no, there is no substitute for, uh, time and intention and effort. I mean, in the past, our survival was dependent right. on others. So, so we're, we, we're designed for that. So we didn't have a choice right now. We have a choice. And so all of a sudden you have to, you have to do that yourself. Mm -hmm. It's, it's before we had all these social pressures, right. you know, now, we, now luckily, you know, we have more freedom. However, you, you, you took away that supporting column. And if you don't want the building to fall down, we, we need to deliberately replace it with something else to hold mm. it up. Uh, do we have an option if things have gotten past what we, people feel like is a point of no return? Is there like a way to rebuild the kind of the excitement, the intentionality that we're talking about? Or I, I don't know. Is, I mean, are things recoverable? I'm, absolutely. It's like, it's just like, I mean, literally that's, you know, it's like, it's, it's why I've, I've really felt a strong need to, to write the book because we, we do have these answers. These answers are here. You know, if we understand them and do the work, no, like I said, our relationships can be the best that have ever existed mm -hmm. because we have that flexibility. We're not going to starve and die. We, we just, we just need to understand how it really works and put in the time. Interesting. Yeah. Eric Barker, again, the book is plays well with others, surprising science behind why everything you know about relationships is mostly wrong link to where you can buy the book in the show notes eric two last questions i ask them to everybody first and foremost aside from buying the book again link in the show notes pick it up uh how can people follow up with you uh if they go to uh ericbarker.org e-r-i-c-b-a-r-k-e-r.org they can keep up with uh, my blog where i post the latest research on how to be better how to live an awesome life link to eric's blog in the show notes as well one last question and i ask it to everybody what is one thing we can all start doing today that will make our lives a whole lot better tell your friends what scares you tell your friends wow. things that you're worried about tell your friends things like i basically in the book i call it the scary rule mm -hmm. if it scares you say it let you're gonna feel better they're going to feel better. Wow. You're, you're trusting them. You know, you're, you're telling them something that is on your mind. You're going to feel better for putting it out there. They're going to understand you better. And they very well might be able to help you or at least emotionally support you. Why don't we do that? Why, why are we so scared? I mean, because it's, you know, it's, we could look stupid. We could look weak. We could, we could look incompetent. You know, you know it's, it's amazing. That, that, the, uh, this idea of perception and how we're perceived and how much trouble we get ourselves into. I mean, there's all of those moments in serial killer movies where the person doesn't <laughs> want to look like a jerk, so they go to help the serial killer. I mean, it's Les Islands of the Lambs. Yeah. You know, she, so she, she gets into the van, and then, yeah. and then she ends up in the well. Uh, yeah. 
but but it's because she doesn't want she her 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 spider sense tingles. She knows yeah. it's a bad situation, but then she doesn't want to feel bad, and so she gets in there. And how many times do we do we avoid uh, do we avoid real connection, or 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 do we allow ourselves to go into pitfalls because we're afraid of that single moment of negative perception? Absolutely, and with the people that matter, it's it's really critical. The yeah. small talk hurts long-term friendships yeah yeah well there you go uh eric parker thank you so much for being with us today i really appreciate your time that's really good to be here man that's it for the show today thank you guys so much for listening if you like the show please rate comment and subscribe on apple Podcasts, spotify stitcher wherever you get your podcast it helps us out a lot when you guys do that uh so please do it uh, if you would like to know more about us you can check out uh facebook.com slash john tesh we go live there all the time John is also on Instagram at John Tesh underscore IFYL. I'm Gib Gerard. You can find me on Instagram and Twitter at Gib Gerard, Facebook.com slash Gib Gerard. I try to respond to every mention of the show, every DM, every discussion about the show, because ultimately I do the show for you guys. So thank you so much for listening. <laughs> <laughs>